Hi, this is Pastor Emily McGinley from Urban Village Church, Hyde Park, Woodlawn. If you've been to UVC, you'll know that we seek to be three things, bold, inclusive, and relevant. We know that there are countless folks across the country and out there in podcast land like yourself, seeking a message that will bring insight, hope, encouragement, and joy as we do this thing called faith. Please consider making a financial gift to help us with this work of inspiring, equipping, and sending out agents of gospel life and inclusive love. Just go to www.urbanvillagechurch.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening, and God bless. Today's reading comes from the book of Luke, chapter 2, verse 1 through 21. In those days, Caesar Augustus declared that everyone throughout the empire should be enrolled in tax lists. This first enrollment occurred when Quirinius governed Syria. Everyone went to their own cities to be enrolled. Since Joseph belonged to David's house and and family line, he went up to the city of Nazareth in Galilee to David's city called Bethlehem in Judea. He went to be enrolled together with Mary, who was promised to him in marriage, and who was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for Mary to have her baby. She gave birth to her firstborn child, a son, wrapped him snugly, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the guest room. Nearby, shepherds were living in the fields, guarding their sheep at night. The Lord's angels stood before them, and the Lord's glory shone around them and they were terrified. The angel said, don't be afraid. Look, I bring good news to you, wonderful, joyous news for all people. Your savior is born today in David's city. He is Christ the Lord. This is a sign for you. You will find a newborn baby wrapped snugly and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great assembly of heavenly forces was with the angel praising God. They said, Glory to God in heaven and on earth, peace among those whom he favors. When the angels returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, let's go right now to Bethlehem and see what's happened. Let's confirm that the Lord has revealed to us what the Lord has revealed to us. They went quickly and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. When they saw this, they reported what they had been told about this child. Everyone who heard it was amazed at what the shepherds told them. Mary committed these things to memory and considered them carefully. The shepherds returned home, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. Everything happened just as they had been told. May the Lord add a blessing to our hearing and understanding of this word. Thank you. Good morning. How are y'all doing? Well, my name is Caleb Murphy. I'm the director of operations at Urban Village Church. Um, for now, for the next few weeks, uh, some of you may have seen the announcement in the slide that I'll be leaving uh, in a few weeks to move to Minneapolis. And we have uh, Grant Crusor, who is coming to take my place. Um, some of you know him. He's a great guy, going to do a great job. Um, but I'm really excited to be here today. I think this is what's causing that. To be here today, um, this will probably be my last sermon at Urban Village Church, so I'm glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me. And um, yeah, so let's get started. Um, I don't know about you, but this Christmas I've been feeling really weary and tired. 
I think it's a lot from news media and just watching all the things throughout this year unfold and really just not feeling like in the mood. I don't feel merry. I don't feel joyful. I don't feel like ringing the bells and like going caroling down the streets. It feels like going caroling down the streets on a rainy day is what it feels like. Um, but I was just looking at what's happened just in the last couple of months, and this is a sobering list, but I think it really speaks to like what maybe some of you are feeling as well. Just in the last couple months, in October, um, there was the mass killing at Oregon Community College where 10 people were shot dead. November 13th, the terrorists in Paris that killed 120. Three days later, 24-year-old Jamar Clark, a young black boy in Minneapolis, was shot dead by police. And witnesses say that he was handcuffed and they executed him. Just about a week later, Chicago police released the video of Laquan McDonald. Um, he was a 17-year-old who was shot by a Chicago officer as he lay on the ground motionless. December 2nd, the couple in San Bernardino killed 14 of their co-workers at a holiday party. And then, as Emily mentioned earlier, we have a leading presidential candidate calling for registering all Muslims in this country and banning any others from entering. And I've been hearing all these things, and I know for myself, like I have a certain amount of privilege that I can kind of cut that off and not have to deal with that. I recognize that. But I want to be engaged and see what's happening, and it just feels really tiring. Um, and it was hard to think, how do I preach a Christmas sermon when all this is going on? And so I was looking for, um, for other people's sermons. Um, <laughs> Let's see what they had done at times like this, at times when uh, facing difficulty at Christmas and it not feeling like Christmas season. And um, I came across one by Dr. Martin Luther King, um, and it's like, can't go wrong there, so I'll quote that one. Um, so this was 1967, um, toward the end of his life. The next year he would be assassinated. But that year he had begun preaching out against the Vietnam War. Um, he believed that nonviolence in the U.S. applied to um, the way the U.S. went about the world, that nonviolence mattered everywhere, not just within our borders. And he lost a lot of allies because of that and had a lot of pushback throughout the year. And so on Christmas Eve in 1967, um, looking around the war that was going on, the loss of friends and allies, he had this quote that when I read it, I'm like, this I feel like speaks to where we're at today. And I'm going to have that on the screen so you can follow along. This Christmas season finds us a rather bewildered human race. We have neither peace within nor peace without. Everywhere, paralyzing fears harrow people by day and haunt them by night. Our world is sick with war. Everywhere we turn, we see its ominous possibilities. And yet, my friends... The Christmas hope for peace and goodwill toward all men can no longer be dismissed as a kind of pious dream of some utopia. If we don't have goodwill toward men in this world, we will destroy ourselves by the misuse of our own instruments and our own power. Let me go back to the main slide. We've been in the sermon series called Another Way in a Manger, which we've been exploring what does the coming of Jesus in the Christmas story have to do with justice in our world? And what kind of empires was, were Joseph and Mary facing and Jesus facing and standing up against? And what kind of empires today do we have an opportunity to follow Jesus into and the inbreaking of a new kingdom, a new kind of empire that celebrates peace and love and justice in a different way? 
So we've been doing that by looking at different empires in popular culture. We've looked at Game of Thrones, last week was TV series Empire, and this week we'll be looking at uh, Hunger Games, culminating in the Star Wars release next weekend. <laughs> Any Star Wars fans in here? Yeah, a, a few, so be back next week. <laughs> Emily's going to bring it. <laughs> So um, I want to focus on the main part of this passage that we read. It's a common uh, Christmas passage. I want to focus on the beginning part when we look at the census that was taken, the, the list of registration for a tax list, and, and focus on what that means and what we can learn about empire there and how Jesus and his parents dealt with empire at that time. So I think there's two main ideas in this piece. And we're going to kind of build it on building blocks. So if we just start with a one idea and you may be like, Caleb, I don't really like that idea. Like, it's going to build. So like, wait till the end. And then you can come and be like, I still don't like what you said. And we, and we can talk about it. But two main ideas and we'll have one kind of concluding message to take away with us. So the first idea, I want to read the passage again in the first verse. Um, if we could go back on the screen. It's coming, I promise. If not, I can read it myself. Here we go. In those days, Caesar Augustus declared that everyone throughout the empire should be enrolled in the tax list. You may know this is the census, the registration, other versions say that. The first enrollment occurred when Quirinius governed Syria. Everyone went to their own cities to be enrolled, and since Joseph belonged to David's house and family line, he went up from the city of Nazareth in Galilee to David's city called Bethlehem. And that's good. Um, so last week, Emily talked about the chapter before, remember the, the Song of Mary, and now Luke is transitioning in this chapter to go into more historical detail to set the stage of what things are happening in the world. Uh, this story has these historical notes for a reason. They're not just like things for us to kind of bore over and, and go on. So Caesar Augustus, I'm going to do some like kind of teachy historical stuff, nerd stuff. So some of you may like it, but many may not. Um, <laughs> Caesar Augustus, uh, he has record in his, his own records he left behind in 8 BC. He issued a census for the entire empire. At that time, it took about two to three years for a census to be completed. Uh, Quirinius, uh, we know, was a military leader in that region around 6 BC. And many scholars think that 6 BC was around when Jesus was born. So it kind of fits broadly. Historians kind of go over the data to try to see, does this work, does it not? But there is ways to read the data and say, like, it does fit the story. Um, some of you may be saying, but I thought BC and AD meant, like, right when Jesus was born. Like, well, the first guy who thought of that was just wrong. So, <laughs> so in any case, the, the idea here is that Joseph and Mary, who have this, like, miraculous thing happening in their lives are subjected to the powers of the empire. The Roman Empire has control over the decisions they make and the places that they go. And for a large extent, they can't do much about it, or it seems like they can't do much about it. Um, I think in a kind of a lighthearted example of what it feels like to be um, outside of control of where you can go and, and how you can get there has, has been my experience of the CTA in my time living in Chicago. Uh, when I first moved to the city, I was very optimistic and probably a little naive um, about how great the CTA, CTA is or was or may never be, actually. Um, and so I got rid of my car in the first month. So like, this is going to be great. I can do this. I would be running for buses. Like, I can catch it. I know I can catch it when it gets to the next stop. Like, a train would be coming, and I would bound up the stairs, and, like, the doors would shut on me. But I'm like, this was worth the effort, though. Like, it's going to pay off one day for me to be running up these things and running for the buses. I know that it's worth it. Um, and then there was one day that changed things for me. It was about two years ago, 
And I was working downtown at the time. I lived in Logan Square, so I was about six stops from the Blue Line to downtown. So not very far. Uh, morning commute is about 20 to 30 minutes. Um, there was uh, something happened on the Blue Line downtown. There was like a brush fire, or like a, a trash fire. Not a brush fire. It's not <laughs> a tumbleweeds rolling down. It, there's a trash fire, so they shut down the Blue Line downtown. And uh, so they couldn't, you couldn't get downtown unless you took a bus, a taxi, or something like that. So I had to get off the train. And one of the shuttle buses came full to the brim. Like people were like squeezed against the windows and it passed. And then another one passed. And then another one passed. Uh, taxis were coming like, oh, they're a taxi. I'll get a taxi. They were all full. I was walking like, I'll get a taxi eventually. No taxi ever came. Uber was charging four times the rate, uh, which for Uber drivers is probably really great for them. Yeah. <laughs> um, but for the rest of us, hundreds of people like looking for a way downtown, um, there was nothing. And I finally gave up. Like, I will walk back on the train and I'll sit there until we go. And two hours later, I made it downtown. <laughs> um, it, was, it literally would have been faster to walk. Um, the lesson that I had that day, um, I, I guess it really broke my spirit. Um, I have since stopped running for buses um, for the CTA. I stopped running. Uh, for trains. Uh, if a bus comes and it's like a little too full, I'll just wait another 10 minutes. Like I've really just lost any enthusiasm for the CTA. Um, and so if you see like a, a sad man in Logan Square sitting at a bus stop, it's probably me and just waiting for a bus to come with a seat. Um, so th just funny story. But I, I think the, the thing we've all felt at times on the CTA is like, I need to get somewhere and there's nothing I can do. Like I just have to wait till they say it's time to go. Um, we've experienced that before, um, and this is like a, a small, like funny way, but what we kind of see happening there is this, this sense that there are powers that control me no matter how much I want to make a choice for myself about where I can go. And we think about the kinds of institutions and systems that exist in our city, not just the CTA, but all of the systems that exist, and we see the way those powers um, do things for more evil ends, um, for more nefarious ends. Um, I, I came across this theologian this week, called uh, his name is Walter Wink. He wrote a book called The Powers That Be. Um, I'm not sure if I agree with all of it. I'm still like working through to see what I think, but I think some of his thoughts are helpful in this discussion. And he, he said this about the powers that be. He's talking about those systems and institutions that have influence over our lives. He said, the powers that be are not then simply people and their institutions, as I had at first thought. They also include the spirituality at the core of those institutions and structures. If we want to change those systems, we will have to address not only their outer forms, but their inner spirit as well. So we hear that and we think about the systems in our city or in our country. We have the police department. We have our state government. We have the American economy. We have Hollywood. We have the United Methodist Church and other churches. Um, all of these systems, which I think many of us understand, operate with traditions and values and culture that dictates their operation and dictates how people experience them. But Walter Wink would argue that the systems are more than the sum of their parts. It's more than just the traditions and practices and the individuals, but there is a corporate spirituality that shapes them. This is why you might see um, maybe a company you work for, an organization you work for, like a manager exchanges exchange for another manager, but the same dysfunctions keep going on and on. Or you see in a church, like a pastor changed for another pastor, and the church kept shrinking and dying and not going well. 
Or it's also one reason we might look at the Chicago Police Department and see that they have an internal affairs division, they have a police board, they have an independent police review authority, three separate oversight organizations, and yet the same problems come up again and again. No matter how many district superintendents, no matter how many mayors, the, the spirituality within those systems remain unchanged. Luke, in this passage that we read, is getting at and hinting at the spirituality of the Roman Empire that Jesus and his parents were having to deal with. We want to know, okay, so what was that spirituality? We see that Emperor Augustus had these, these rules. He had military rulers who were over these regions to enforce the rules. How did this work? Well, I, I, I did some research, and here's some more like nerdy history stuff. I want to read this inscription that was written during the reign of Augustus by some of his subjects in Asia Minor. Uh, they were celebrating who he was, and this is one of the slides that I, I have in here. So, so read this, and it's a little hard to follow, but I'll read it out loud. Since the providence that has divinely ordered our, our existence has applied her energy and zeal and has brought to life the most perfect good in Augustus, whom she has filled with virtues for the benefit of mankind, bestowing him upon us and our descendants as a savior, he who put an end to war and will order peace, Caesar, who by his epiphany exceeded the hopes of those who prophesied good news, not only outdoing benefactors in the past, but also allowing no hope of greater benefactions in the future. Do you see some of the things that are going on here? Um, the spirituality that's part of this empire? I mean, some of the things that were said there. Augustus is the savior of the human race. He brings peace to the earth. He puts an end to war. He fulfills prophecies of good news. Like, you hear some of the stuff that's going on there. I, I think at the heart of the Roman Empire, what Luke is trying to, to set up here in his book is to show that Augustus is pre presenting himself as the great ruler of Rome, who he is the great ruler who gets things done, who makes things happen, who is in some way God in person in that empire. And so then we look at this and we see that Mary and Joseph, under that authority in that context, are forced to carry themselves to another place at the worst possible time to be counted in a census. I think his point here in pointing out these details is to show that Mary and Joseph were subjected to these powers. They were subjected to the powers that be. And that's really the, the main idea here. So this is the one that's kind of like, kind of like not really happy, but we are subjected to powers. Like the powers in the world are there. And they influence us, they have control over us, and we're subjected to them. And that's something I think Luke is just saying, like, we, we have to own it. Now, what Walter Rinkwood would say is that we need to understand it and analyze it. We, we don't just say, like, oh, these are theirs, so let's, like, work hard and get rid of them. Wink would say we need to understand how the powers work. And he says there's kind of three main ways to view them um, that need to go together. So the powers is being um, intended to be good, the powers then being fallen, and then thirdly, the powers must be redeemed. So the powers are good, and we'll unpack that a little bit later, but they are fallen, they're twisted, they're wicked, and they must be redeemed. They need to go undergo salvation and transformation. So the, the thing that we have to see when we look at the powers in our world is we can't, be, uh, we can't fool ourselves by thinking we just need to change individual hearts, and then things will get better. 
We just need to have better people in these systems and these structures and institutions. We have to not fool ourselves and think we just need new programs, new oversight boards, new training, new more diversity training, all of these things. Like There is something more to what's happening in our systems and our institutions that has to be dealt with head on, that needs to be transformed from within. That's the big idea. Um, the first big idea. The second idea um, comes from our next section. We'll start in verse 5, if you can pull that up. Thank you so much for all the flipping through these things. Okay. He went to be, so Joseph went to be enrolled together with Mary, who was promised to him in marriage, and who was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for Mary to have her baby. She gave birth to her firstborn child, a son, wrapped him snugly, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the guest room. Nearby, shepherds were living in the fields, guarding their sheep at night. The Lord's angels stood before them. The Lord's glory shone around them, and they were terrified. The angels said, don't be afraid. Look, I bring good news to you. Wonderful, joyous news for all people. Your Savior is born today in David's city. He is Christ the Lord. This is a sign for you. You will find a newborn baby wrapped snugly and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great assembly of the heavenly forces was with the angel praising God. They said, glory to God in heaven and on peace and on earth peace among those whom he favors. So next week, Emily's going to go deeper into what the birth story looks like and, and unpacking that more. I'm focusing more on the census and how we understand that in connection to the birth. So, so I want to focus on Mary's story here, because I think uh, she can get lost in here, and that, I, I, that's often what happens for, for women in Scripture. But I think Luke is pointing out a few things in here, maybe subtly, um, First is that Mary, her lineage is not the one that counts. She goes to the city of David, to Bethlehem, because that's where Joseph's lineage came from. And so we see already there, like, she is subject not just to the emperor, not just to the governor, but also to the groom, her fiancé. She's going there for what? A census which is just counting people. She's literally just a number. If anything, she's just a plus one to Joseph um, in the most like unhelpful way. It's not a party she's going to, not that kind of plus one. Um, I, I think this is, if we put our, let's put our analysis to work, okay? Um, the powers are good, the powers are broken, and the powers must be redeemed. We see, if we think about the state, what should a state, um, big S state, do um, if, it's, if we think about its intentionality to be good? Um, I think many people, most people would say, well, to peace and order. Those are like basic things. Like, um, now, we can argue about what does that look like, how is that enforced, and all that stuff, and those are good things to, to, to ask and argue about. But basically, a state keeps peace in some way or form or fashion. Um, how does that get twisted? Well, we see in this story the way that patriarchy has twisted that and not only uh, uses the state, but then the state, the system, the Roman Empire uses that as well. It's not just the Roman Empire. That happens today as well. So patriarchy is making Mary just a number who has to take this trip in her most vulnerable time so that the Roman emperor can express, what, his power, his masculinity? That's the, the question there. So we see this unhelpful spiral, this, this deadly spiral, which is enforced with violence. That's how these twisted systems often like, have to maintain their, their uh, twistedness. 
is through violence. So then the question is, okay, the power should have been something else, but it's been twisted. So how is it redeemed? How do we do that? Well, hold on a second. We're going to come back around to that. Um, this sermon series, Another Way in a Manger, I talked about how um, we're looking at three different, or, uh, in the past few weeks, we've looked at two uh, contemporary versions, and today we'll be looking at Hunger Games. We're going to show a clip in a second, so I'm going to start setting it up when they're pulling it up. Um, if you don't know the Hunger Games, it started as a trilogy of books before becoming uh, big movies. It's set in the future in which there is this capital where the top 1% elites live off of the labor of 12 districts across the nation. So it's, it's this 1% elite living very rich and um, filled with all sorts of pleasures um, off of the backs of the common people. So nothing like anything we've experienced before. <laughs> Um, so in, in these 12 districts, they have a way of enforcing uh, and keeping people distracted from the oppression that's taking place, and it's called the Hunger Games. The games themselves happen every year, which randomly one boy and one girl between age 12 and 18 is chosen from each district. So out of 12, 24 kids are chosen to go into an arena and fight to the death, while the Capitol watches it as a reality TV show. It's not really a kid's movie. Just so you know, it's pretty dark, and it ends pretty darkly as well. Um, so we have in the first movie, and I'm, I'm going to show a clip from this, um, a conversation between Katniss and Peeta, and they were chosen from District 12, a really poor district, to be the representatives. And this is the night before the games. They are in the capital, in the place, in, the, in Rome, basically. And they are talking about how do we enter into these games um, in this context? What do we do in these games? So I... I think the volume would be good. I'm going to step out of the way. Listen to them. Yeah. I just don't want them to change me. How would they change you? I don't know. I'm going to turn me into something I'm not. I just don't want to be another piece in their game, you know? You mean you won't kill anyone? No. I mean, you know, I'm sure I would, just like anybody else when the time came, but... Yeah, I just keep wishing that I could think of a way to show them that they don't own me. You know, if I'm, if I'm gonna die, I want to still be me. Um, so you see in this, um, Peter knows what's going on in the system. He knows the oppression, but he, it's like, it may seem like we have no power, but I want to find a way to step up, to stand up, and to show that I still have power. I still um, am me and can show these, the powers that be um, that this is not right. I think um, when we look at Mary um, and her journey, and uh, I think Emily will unpack this later. Maybe she goes a totally different, different way, and so you'll just be left without anything after the sermon. Um, but I, I think what we see Mary doing uh, later on is, is seeing the powers, doing the analysis, and understanding that she does have power to stand up um, and to step up. And even if it's in a very small 
way. We looked at the, the song which she sang uh, last, last week, in which she said in the song, The Mighty One has done great things for me. He has shown strength with his arm. He has lifted up the lowly. I think that because Mary has seen God's faithfulness before, she can step up and hold on to the faith that she has because she knows that God will not abandon her in the future. Even though it looks like all the power has been taken away from her, she knows that God has got her. I think in our world, when we look at the powers that we face, uh, one of the ways we often respond is in a religious way. And for those of you who may have heard me preach before, you may get this. Let me fill in. Like, um, when I use the word religious, I don't mean like a, a neutral kind of like practices and traditions. I mean religious in kind of a pejorative sense. Religious as I do these things in order to be accepted by God. I work really hard to be accepted and respectable and to be the good religious person. I think when we look at the powers that be in our society, we can get in the mindset that if I just work hard, if I just organize enough, if I have enough faith, then we'll see change happen. And uh, I think at times when that's succeeding, we start to feel really proud. Like, yeah, yeah, look at what I've done. Look what we've done together. We've done all of this, and it's really awesome. And those of you who aren't getting anything done, well, you know, you didn't pray enough. You didn't work hard enough. It's really easy for that pride to become its own kind of power Um, that pushes down others. But I think when we face the powers that be in this religious kind of construct and we fail, when we are working hard to change and it doesn't change and it doesn't change and it doesn't change, we slip into first, I think, denial. And we say like, well, I must not have prayed enough. I need to pray more. I need to have more faith. Um, And when that still doesn't work, I think the denial slips into despair. And we think maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm really rotten. Maybe this isn't worth it. Maybe I really should be stuck in this position of powerlessness. When we get in that religious mindset, um, it can lead to pride, or if we're not seeing the success that we want, it leads to denial and then despair. And I think we don't see that happening in Mary. I think she has, even though she may not be using the term, she has experienced the good news, the gospel that God's love, forgiveness, acceptance, and power is given to her, not because of how good she is, because she, she knows that she's not very good. She knows that she's not very good in the eyes of others. People who see this, this unwed mother are not applauding her. It's like, oh, God must be doing something for you. She knows that she's not acceptable or respectable to the world around her, but she knows even deeper that God's love for her is unchanging, and it doesn't matter what that is. And that, I think, convinces her that I can step up and I can hold on to faith no matter what. And I think it's uh, in Luke's telling of the story, it's not an accident, that language we saw from the angels to the shepherds at the end. Do you remember what they said? Um, They said uh, the angels were bringing good news, a Savior who would bring peace to earth. Does that sound familiar to what we read earlier? The, The message about Augustus predates this book. Like those words were used intentionally to show that you think that this empire of Augustus is the one that's in control, that the one that's in power? Well, what Luke is showing us and what Mary is hoping for is that there is another emperor coming. There is good news about a different kind of savior, one who is birthed in a manger and not a palace, in a crib and not a throne. I'm running over time here, so I'm going to kind of run through this in. So those, those are two ideas, okay? I just looked at that. Oh gosh, this is going over. Um, two ideas that we had was that we are subjected to the powers, but 
Jesus is bringing a different kind of power, a different kind of kingdom. And that will confront and transform the powers that be from within. Uh, I think our response should be that kind of concluding response is that we step up and we hold faith. So we step up, we're not silent, we don't isolate ourselves, like we're in the kingdom, so we're like, we're stepping away, not getting involved in the powers that be. No, we step up and we step in and we, we speak up for those who are being pushed down. No matter where we are, we can speak up for someone, even if it's for ourselves. We also hold on to faith because we may not always, many of us may not ever see the fruition of transformation happen in our lifetimes. But we have seen what God's done before. We have seen God's mighty arm to save. And we say, I am holding on to faith that this is real and that this is going somewhere. In uh, Dr. King's uh, sermon that I, I referenced earlier, he talked about that in Christmas times like this, we have to keep Easter in view. As we look at the story of Jesus, a king born in a manger, um, born in a cave, not a palace, um, not a throne, and he goes on to live and to teach and to be rejected and ultimately to die at the hands of the powers that be. But the story of Easter is that is not the end of our story. We are waiting. We're waiting for Christmas Jesus um, just like the disciples were waiting for resurrection Jesus, and we are still waiting for Jesus to bring the kingdom that he talked about and preached about. So even while we wait, we look back at what God has done, and we step up. We step up, we hold the faith. We step up, we speak up, and we hold on in faith. Let's pray. God, thank you that you have sent Jesus into our world to bring about this transformation. I ask that you... Fill us with the courage and faith to step up when the time comes to speak about injustice, to speak about our Muslim neighbors, to, to speak about whatever we see happening in our lives and in others, and to hold on to faith knowing that you are doing something that we may not see right now, um, but just as the sun is shining now, that we can see it and know that it's working. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.